Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we encourage you to love well and lead well. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have a fantastic episode for you this week as I sat down with Brian Zahn, pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian has served as lead pastor of Word of Life since he and his wife first planted the church over 35 years ago. He is an important voice in the contemporary church and is committed to authentically sharing the truth of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. He's written several books, including his most recent, which is entitled Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. This book tackles heavy topics such as the wrath of God and the eternal punishment of hell with incredible clarity, which arises from his intense commitment to Jesus and Scripture. On this week's episode, Brian shares why the Christocentricity of Scripture impacts how we preach. Uh, We talk about how we can best understand the wrath of God as portrayed in the Old Testament and how we can better respond to many of the questions raised against God in our world today. And we also have a very honest discussion about how God stretched Brian during a specific season of ministry and the adjustments that he had to make as he drew near to God during that time. Uh, This is some great insight from a pastor who has lived it, which I believe will be helpful to pastors everywhere. So let's not waste any more time. Let's dive right into my conversation with Brian Zahn. Brian, I just want to thank you for joining us here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, super excited. Uh, in your latest book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, you bring to light what you refer to as the scandalous truth of the very good news. Now, in this book, you tackle some very important topics such as the wrath of God, Old Testament genocide, the violent crucifixion of Jesus, eternal punishment in hell, some pretty heavy topics. But before we dig in more deeply to those topics— Can you help us set the stage about this scandalous truth? Why is it scandalous? I think it's scandalous because um, we're always nervous that if God is as good as uh, the Spirit seems to be indicating to us, we're afraid that there will be no justice in the world. And we are deeply committed, I think, in our fallen state— to the idea that only retributive justice can um, corral sin. And I, I understand how you can arrive at that, but I don't think that's really the truth that the Scriptures are trying to draw us into. I don't think it's what we see embodied in Jesus. And so another way of saying it is we're all a lot like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And we see this boy come home, and what happens? It's a ring, shoes, you know, fatted calf, and the whole bit. And we're thinking, come on, where's the justice in that? And But if we hold on to that, where do we end up? We end up outside the party. We end up in the outer darkness, gnashing our teeth. So, uh, yeah, I think it is scandalous. I think... You know, it's why for a long time I needed to preach God. I say needed. I mean, from some place in my soul that was not yet really properly formed, I felt compelled to preach God as angry, violent, and retributive. And then when you start suggesting that God is not, in, that God is not ontologically angry, 
violent retributive, that strikes us as scandalous. That's that's well put. Now, obviously, your your book centers in the hands of a loving God. It is a play on a very, very well-known sermon that was preached by the Puritan revivalist John Edwards. So, centers in the hands of an angry God. So can yeah. you tell us a little bit of uh, your, your personal history with Edwards' sermon and, and how this kind of evolved out of that? Yeah, I've been a pastor of the same church for just almost now 36 years. I'm 58, so I'll dispel the mystery. How old is that? <laughs> I'm 58. And in my 20s, early on, I was fascinated by the revivalists. And, you know, I mean— John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, these these primary lights in the Great Awakening. And I, I wanted to be like them. And I wanted to have their results, I guess, is probably more what I was interested in. And so, but I was deeply fascinated by them. And I was captured by, you know, the kind of the legend that's around the preaching of sinners in the hands of an angry God. This, I think it's 1741, I think is when it was preached. And, and the effect that it had upon not only his congregation, but uh, the colonists in New England. And so what I did was I took from a larger collection of Edwards' sermons, I photocopied that particular sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I fashioned my own booklet of this sermon. Now, this is back in the 80s. This is when cut and paste was done with scissors and glue. <laughs> so I, I kind of you know, I, I arranged the pages and made a little book and put a you know, cardstock blue cover on it. And I wrote with a heavy black marker, sinners in the hands, and then in all caps, of an angry God. And I memorized parts of it to you to place in my arsenal for evangelism by terrorism. In fact, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll give our listeners a little sample. You know, this, this sermon is, um, I don't think there's any sermon that has more shaped the American religious imagination than Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And people, you know, they find it, I mean, it, it's, it's often used in school as the stock example of creative writing. And so people continue to encounter this sermon. Here's probably the most famous passage. It's the spider passage, and it goes like this. This is Edward's sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to have to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Dang. That's warm and fuzzy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, you know, to sum it up, God hates you. (laughs) Right, right. Now, now I, I also need to add that this is not fully indicative of the entire corpus of Jonathan Edwards' preaching, but, you know, it is his most famous sermon. And right. so, can I read one more passage? Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's I mean, that. this is—the the spider passage is the, is the most famous, but this at one time was my favorite. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God for one moment. 
but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. Mm. And it has that line in there, almighty, merciless vengeance. And so that's where now, many years later, I'm saying, okay, let's take a step back. Right. Is God a God of almighty, merciless vengeance or not? Right. I, I, know, I know you can use the Bible to paint that portrait, because I did. If that's what you want to, if your agenda is, I want to paint a portrait of almighty merciless vengeance, that God is violent, angry, retributive. I know how to use the Bible to do that. But still, the question remains, is that true? Yeah, so, is that a responsible use of Scripture or not? Right. Let me ask you this, Brian, then. So, I mean, you were into this sermon, obviously. I mean, you went old school, got out the scissors yeah. and, and the glue and uh, made your own little booklet. I mean, you were into it, obviously. What changed? I mean, what happened from that to... Now you've published an incredible book that kind of turns that all on its head. Well, that's a long story, but I'll try to give you some summary of it. Um, and not, not just to be talking about my books, but I mean, it's the story I tell in my memoir, Water to Wine. I became increasingly, really what I am is I'm a, I'm a product of the Jesus movement. And the Jesus movement uh, is what kind of was my doorway to everything else. And it's where I found revivalism and charismatic renewal and all of that sort of stuff. And I was, I was actually, by the metrics that Americans like to measure success, I was a very successful pastor, large church, all of that sort of thing. Uh, but upon turning 40, I began to have a growing discontent. Again, from the looking outwardly upon what I was doing, it was all what people would want you know, success. Mm -hmm. But I was increasingly feeling that the Jesus I had been captured by as a teenager deserved a better Christianity than what I saw. It seemed weak, shallow, thin, too much. Um, it seemed, it seemed scandalously American. <laughs> mm. It seemed very American and not enough Jesus. And so I began to read, I just started reading Church Fathers uh, a lot, and philosophy, and uh, kind of, you know, the canon of Western literature, just the best, but really emphasizing the Church Fathers. Eventually, by the time I was 45, this was 2004, I, I just suddenly had a break with all of that. And I, I began to discover what I would say is the good stuff. I was kind of embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. I mean, I, I was studying the church fathers, but I wasn't aware of who I consider some of our best 
contemporary uh, conversation partners about the God revealed in Christ. And so I began to really be influenced by N.T. Wright. You know, N.T. Wright's always the gateway drug. (laughs) (laughs) And then then Walter Brueggemann and Stanley Hauerwas and David Bentley Hart and on and on it goes. And that just transformed me. Plus, I was learning how to pray much better at this time, learning some practices of using a liturgy and also the practices of of contemplative prayer. And over time, I just began to discover, put it as simply as I can, that God is like Jesus. Mm. That as the writer of Hebrews says, that he is the ex- Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. As the Apostle Paul says, Jesus is the icon, that's the word he uses, the icon of the invisible God. And I began to think, well, if, if Jesus is the perfect full revelation of who God is, the logos of God, the logic of God as a human life, well, then that, I'm going to have to rethink some things which is repent, which is reponse. So uh, that's what happened. Uh, and that, that's what happened in me trying to tell it in a few minutes. Right. No, no, I appreciate but, that. But it takes place over a decade. Yeah. And you, you know what I love about that, Brian, is and I'm thinking of, you know, our pastors. You know, we have young pastors listening. Uh, we have pastors who have been, you know, leading leading churches for decades and decades. But what I love about that is that it reminds us that God is always at work in our lives, right? He is yeah. always shaping us and molding us. There's always that next step. He's always drawing us more deeply. And we can kind of push that aside and just say, hey, I kind of have this figured out now and, and keep going with it. Or we can do like you did and just be open to how the Spirit is at work in our lives that we might become, continue to, to grow into Christ-likeness and what God's drawing us to, right? Yeah. Look, Jason, I, 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 uh, I can remember a very specific moment in November of 2003 when, I, you know, have you, ever, have you ever found yourself thinking thoughts that you wouldn't admit you were thinking? You tried mm-hmm. to pretend I'm thinking this. Right. Lurking in my mind was this thought. Well, I could just you know, coast. I've got a large church. I know how to write sermons. I can take more vacations, just sort of, you know, ease up, coast, ride this thing out. And that's the thought I wouldn't admit that was, it was there. Right. Or I could go for it. I wasn't even quite sure what go for it meant. And when I tell this story, some people say, they're trying to be kind to me, I suppose. And they say, well, you know, you were always going to go for it. I said, I don't know. Mm. I mean, I, 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 I was prescient enough to know that I was going to risk a lot, that I was, that it was a gamble, that there was no guarantee that this would necessarily lead in anything other than ministerial catastrophe. <laughs> um, but I dared to do it because you can't, you can't unknow what you know and be true to yourself. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to stay on this journey and I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue to try and seek and ask and knock to find out who this God is who is fully revealed in Christ. And it it led to a very difficult time. Uh, It led to a lot of pain, a lot of hardship. And I have absolutely no regret. Wow. None whatsoever. I mean, the pain was real. It it was a genuinely painful time because— 
we lost about a thousand people in our church when I began to pull away from, you know, just kind of religious right, American pop Christianity. That isn't what people have signed up for. Right. And, and these are people that have been in our church, you know, some of them for decades. And I'm in a town of 70,000 people. So if a thousand people leave your church, what happens? Uh, you see them everywhere. Right. You go to the grocery store, you see them in all 10 aisles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was painful. There was also this interesting phenomenon, though. We would have uh, my peers, people my age, leave the church and their adult children stay and say, Mom and Dad, you can do what you want, but but this is this is what's keeping us in Christianity. And so but that that's now kind of all water under the bridge. We're at a very healthy place, very good place. I've never been more I don't know, what's the word? Happy, content, peaceful, uh, satisfied with, you know, my life as a pastor and but it was it was a hard road to walk though. I can imagine and and uh, I'd like to dig in a little more on that because again I think this could be valuable to to many people who are listening right now. How did you when you started making that shift when it became challenging as you know pastoring a church that you've been pastoring for you founded, you planted, you've been pastoring it for all of these years, you begin to make that shift, you begin to see people that you've done life with um yeah. for quite some time you know, step away. How did you personally navigate that? I, here's how I survived it. Uh, several graces. I'll give them in some order. I don't know what the order means. Uh, let's say, first of all, my wife was on the journey with me. There was never any tension between us. We were both seeing the same thing, feeling the same thing, on the same journey, sort of in lockstep together. That's a huge grace. Uh, I was also learning to pray much better at this time. And I would have my seasons, my daily, you know, morning liturgy of prayer, but also sitting with Jesus. And I was able to, to release people that were misunderstanding me, misrepresenting me, sometimes maligning me. Uh, I was able to just simply, I was able to reach a place where it really was genuine. Father, forgive them. They they don't know what they're doing. Mm. Maybe they can't. And so that was a grace. And <clears throat> excuse me. The third thing was um, God gave me two really good friends that I didn't that I hadn't known. Two other pastors, uh, Brad Jerzak, who lives in uh, Abbotsford, British Columbia, Canadian theologian. <clears throat> he comes from a evangelical background. He's actually Orthodox today. And Joe Beach, pastor of Amazing Grace Church in Denver. And the three of us were kind of in the same place. And so, you know, with communication as it is today, we could talk, you know, text, email, whatever, every day. And we're, we're reading the same books together. And so having those friends with me, if I'd had to do it all alone without my wife and not knowing how to really pray, I don't think I would have survived. I don't know what I don't know what the not surviving would have looked like. Maybe just leaving the ministry. I don't know what would have happened. But those three things: my wife, some friends, and learning how to sit with Jesus. Awesome. That's, <laughs> that's, that's how I made it through that. That's great. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, brother. I appreciate that. Now let's kind of shift a little uh, directions a little bit. I want to kind of dig more into your most recent book here. 
okay. I'd like to spend just a little bit of time maybe talking about one of the topics in that book, and that is the wrath of God. Because I think this sure. is one, like you said, this is kind of um, in the very fabric of the uh, spirituality here in America, right? I was in a conversation not too terribly long ago with an atheist, and um, he shared that his sole reason for denying the existence of God was because of the violence that he witnessed on a daily basis in our world, right? So violence is is all around us. There's no denying it from the recent truck bomb in Somalia to the Las Vegas mass shooting uh, right. to all the violence that's perpetrated on a daily basis that never makes the news. Um, it's just part of of our world. His argument was if God is sovereign and God is loving, then why all the death and violence, right? So he, he couldn't reconcile the depth of violence with what he understood about God and therefore just came to a conclusion that there could not be a God. How do you reconcile? That's a, that's a, that's a protest atheist. Okay. An atheist that isn't really arguing against the existence of God. He is saying this God that he imagines should not exist. America has a Puritan soul. Mm -hmm. We're all Puritans in America. Uh, atheists are Puritans. They're Puritan atheists. They are <laughs> the God they don't believe in is the Puritan God. I have uh -huh. a lot of sympathy for protest atheists. Um, and it's, it's interesting. You can often ask certain uh, kinds of atheists, uh, tell me more. Describe this God in whom you do not believe, which is... <laughs> An interesting question, but usually they can do it. Right. And very often I'm able to say, well, you know, I don't believe in that God either, but I believe in God. Um, but it, it's it's not it's not as simple as just you know a, a tweak here and there. Again, I'm I'm I I am committed to the scriptures. I call the Bible, you know, our canonical text, sacred scripture. I work from it. Daily, I mean, I read it every day, and I'm writing sermons, and it's, it's you know, the, our authoritative text. Yet I also know that you can, you can very cleverly, um, and not even know you're being so clever, make the Bible say what you want it to say. Uh, you can make the Bible stand on its hind legs and dance a jig for you. I mean, I just tell people, what do you want to believe? Just tell me, what do you want to believe? Theologically, politically, socially, culturally, what do you want to believe? Economically, what do you want to believe? Just give me a list. Give me 10 minutes. I'll give you the verses that prove you're right. Oh, wow. Except you right. see what I've done here. You yep. know? I think very often, especially among Protestants, and especially as you move a little bit toward the fundamentalist end of the spectrum, we like to pretend that the Bible, and especially the Old, well, we, we pretend that the Old Testament, for example, is univocal, that it says that it gives us one consistent image of God. And I think that is uh, just patently untrue. For example, if I ask this question of the Old Testament, hello, Old Testament, I have a question for you. Does God, the living God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, require ritual blood sacrifice? Well, immediately the Torah and the priests, they speak up and say, of course, of course. And, and they show me their verses. And But then, but then you know, kind of in the background are some psalmists and prophets, and they're going, I'm not so sure about that. And, you know, I can show you in the Torah where it says that, that sacrifice for sin is required day by day. In giving the, you know, the, 
how the temple is to, or the tabernacle is to be administrated. But you get over to Psalm 40, and the psalmist is saying, uh, sin offering and burnt offering you have not required. Well, which is it? Well, it's this, it's this ongoing argument. So I talk about the Old Testament like this. I mean, and then Hosea eventually will say, in the name of Yahweh, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Interestingly, Jesus quotes that twice. Wow. So Jesus weighs in on this. But here's how I understand the Old Testament. It is the inspired telling of Israel's story as they are coming to know the living God who has chosen them. But it's a journey. And you've got to stay on the journey until you arrive at Jesus. What the Bible does infallibly is bring us to Jesus. That should not be heard as a radical statement for a Christian. Jesus himself said, look, you guys, you're searching the scriptures. You think that's an end in itself. You think the scriptures themselves are going to give you eternal life. No, the scriptures are that which bear witness to me. And yet you won't come to me that you might have eternal life. That's really all I'm saying. But um, that is going to require a new way of reading scripture. And it's a Christocentric. So if somebody feels a little bit nervous about what I'm saying, and they think that, I don't know, maybe Pastor Brian Zahn has a low view of Scripture. No, I have a high view of Christ. Mm. I have a high Christology. And I call the Bible, I'm, I'm comfortable with calling the Bible the Word of God. I have no problem with that, provided we understand that it's the Word of God in a penultimate sense, that Jesus is the true, perfect Word of God. Um, again, that's just that's just Christianity. That's all that is. I would that Christians, when they hear the phrase Word of God, the first thing they would think is Jesus. And then in a secondary sense, and the Bible that bears witness to Jesus. But I'm afraid that we have, well, we're products of a divorce. It, it's the 500th anniversary is coming up here very soon. Uh, I think the Reformation is both to be celebrated and commemorated and also lamented. Because for, where, for, for everything else, for the good that it did in bringing correction to the corruption of the Renaissance Church, it also resulted in a divorce. And um, we Protestants, well, you have to tell children of a divorce, it's not your fault. <laughs> so it's, it's not your fault. Uh, but we ended up with Protestant dad. And in the divorce settlement, all dad got was the Bible. Mm. And that's all we had. And so the Bible had to be everything to us. And we did a lot of good. We've done a lot of good work with the Bible. I mean, that's that's one of the shining lights of Protestant achievement is how we've worked with Scripture. But I'm afraid that we made the Bible be everything. And at, at times we put too much pressure on the Bible and it cannot live up to that. And in its most extreme forms, you almost end up with the Bible itself as being divine as uh, a part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. <laughs> right. That's the extreme form. And, and uh, I know I'm talking to leaders and pastors, and, and hopefully we've been trained to think better than that, but I tell you, that's not a straw man. When you get down to the person in the pew level, in certain traditions, there's a lot of people that really uh, view the Bible much as Muslims would view the Koran. Mm -hmm. The, the equivalent in Christianity to the Koran is not the Bible, but, but Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the Word of God. All right, so I just went on a long rant there. No, that was good. That was good. And as you're talking, I was thinking, how can ministers, how can pastors 
begin to maybe back down a little bit from the Bible becoming in scripture becoming almost, you know, an idol. Like it's it becomes such a something. Yeah. How, how can we kind of process through that? Because I, I do agree with you. I think that um especially in American Christianity, the Bible is, you know, huge. And and if you begin talking about the Bible, a lot of people, you know, just kind of freak out a little bit. You know, they they think yeah. you're being blasphemous almost. So so talk us through that just a little bit if you could. I think the answer is always you lean heavy on Jesus. Let let Jesus carry the load. Preach Jesus. Uh, I, I tell you one of the one of the best and also one of the most daring things I've ever done in my ministry was to preach for six months through the Sermon on the Mount, very slowly, just a little bit at a time. And um, it was interesting in some of these very challenging passages, how people were prone, they, they were nervous. And I understand I'm nervous too. What Jesus calls us to is, is a, a very, very high ethic of love that, that we find intimidating and challenging. And we begin to wonder, well, if we actually tried to live that way, would we not be taken advantage of? You know, could we be safe this way? But it, it's interesting how people would then rush into the Old Testament to latch on to something that was contrary to what Jesus was teaching to give them solace. And so they're using Joshua to save them from Jesus. Mm. I literally had a guy, and this is an intelligent man. But I was, you know, in that passage in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and turn the other cheek, all this business. And he just, he wanted to argue. He said, yeah, but, but God said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's in the Bible. I said, well, who, who, who are you arguing with? Are you arguing with me or are you arguing with Jesus? <laughs> so so there's, a, there's an interesting book. I think it's called uh, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. It's something close to that title, if not. It's by Rabbi Jacob Neusner, wonderful man. But he says this. He says, I admire Jesus. As a Jewish rabbi, I admire Jesus deeply. He sees him as kind of a reformer in, 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 the, in line with the prophetic tradition, the Hebrew prophetic tradition. But he says this, in the end, I have to reject what Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, because what Jesus asks of me, only God has the authority to require. Well, to which a Christian says, Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That, that we, and that's why at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew gives us this commentary. Uh, the people were astonished because Jesus spoke as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. And what's meant there is not that Jesus had you know a lot of self-confidence in his presentation, but that instead of saying, it is written, it is written, Jesus was saying, I say, mm. I say. Well, well, who is this one who can quote the Old Testament? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I'm going to say something different. Well, that puts you in a position where you have to decide, who is this man? Does he have the authority to countermand the Torah? If not, then you can admire him as a reformer, but ultimately you're not called to submit to him. But if you decide, no, I think he does have the authority because I think he is the word made flesh, well, 
then we now we'll see we'll see see Jason what is the Old Testament we call it the Old Testament what's the Hebrew Bible is what it is it's it's the Jewish Bible now as as Gentile Christians which I think you know probably is the vast majority of who I'm speaking to what are we doing with the Hebrew Bible appended as this enormous prequel onto our Christian canonical text. By the way, that's appropriate, but why do we do it? Well, the answer is Jesus is Jewish, and the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, gives us the story of how we get to Jesus. But here's my point. As Christians, we don't start with Genesis 1-1. We start with Star Wars Episode (laughs) 4, and then we get the prequel. We start with Jesus. That's what we always start with. We start with Jesus. And then we're interested in the prequel, the prequel, which makes Jesus our sponsor into the Old Testament, our chaperone into the Old Testament, our interpreter of the Old Testament, Lord over the Old Testament even. So I don't ever go wandering around in the Old Testament unescorted. I'm there because of Jesus and with Jesus. And what I would certainly never do is use the Old Testament to argue with what Jesus has taught. So as you see, I think I'm being very respectful with Scripture, but giving the primacy to Christ, which is a very Christian thing to do. Excellent, excellent. That's so well explained. I certainly appreciate that, Brian. Now, now, as we're talking about that, let's kind of talk about the wrath of God as seen in the Old Testament and kind of uh, the ethic of love that Jesus shares. And so how do we read back into that? Because a lot of people say, you know, those just clash. So help us walk a little through that. When you literalize the metaphor, they clash. Okay. The church fathers consistently said, over and over said, that the wrath of God is a metaphor by which we understand the destructive results of going against God's good purpose for human flourishing. There is the grain of love within the universe, because God is love and God is the source of all that is. Mm -hmm. If we go with the grain of love, loving God with all of our heart, loving our neighbor as ourself, it tends in the direction of human flourishing. When we go against that, we begin to suffer the shards of self-inflicted suffering. We can call this the wrath of God. The Bible does. But at a deeper level, it's not because God is personally vindictive and retributive. Rather, the wages of sin remain death. And you can call that the wrath of God. And even the Old Testament has passages that show us that. I'm going to share one here. In, in uh, Psalm 7, we find this. this is right in the middle of the psalm. God is a righteous judge. God sits in judgment every day. If they will not repent, God will wet his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He has prepared his weapons of death. He makes his shafts, his arrows, shafts of fire. All right, so you you read that and you go, okay, that is a portrait of God as violent, angry, and retributive. He has weapons of death. He's getting ready to shoot people with arrows. and, And that is a very common view of God. You know, the great smiter with his club and his his uh, thunderbolt in hand, which is, of course, much more like Zeus. Mm. Uh, But now I just continue reading because I just stopped before we were done with that passage. The psalmist goes on, Look at those who are in labor with wickedness, 
who conceive evil and give birth to a lie, they dig a pit and make it deep and fall into the hole they have made. Their malice returns back on their own head. Their violence falls on their own scalp. So at, at one point, the psalmist is portraying God as a violent avenger of evil, personally visiting retribution upon sinners. But then he takes us deeper and says, well, that's one way of talking about it, but it's more like they're falling in the hole they have dug. It's more like their own violence boomerangs back on their own head. We can call this the wrath of God. The Bible does. But at a deeper level, we are more punished by our sins than for our sins. Mm. God has a single disposition toward all sinners, and that is one of love. And yet it can be experienced as uh, wrath if we don't respond to love with love. Can I, can I read something else? Yeah, please. Uh, this is the quote that would have been in the book, but it wasn't because I didn't read it until Monday. <laughs> uh, this, this is from uh, The Hidden in the Manifest, Essays in Theology and Metaphysics by David Bentley Hart. And I totally would have quoted this, but I didn't read it till two days ago. Hart says, the wrath of God in Scripture is a metaphor suitable to our feeble understanding, one which describes not the action of God toward us, but what happens when the inextinguishable fervency of God's love toward us is rejected. According to Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus the Confessor, Isaac of Nineveh, and others, even hell itself is not a divine work, but the reality we have wrought within ourselves by our perverse refusal to open out, as God himself eternally has done, in love for God and others. For when we have so sealed up ourselves within ourselves, the fire of divine love cannot transform and enliven us, but only assail us as an external chastisement. For our God is a consuming fire, and the pathos of our rage cannot interrupt the apathia of his love. Mm. That's all one sentence, by the way. That's so David Bentley Hardy. <laughs> that was one sentence that I just read there. But yeah. So it's a metaphor for the consequences of going against the grain of love. I think it's you know helpful to use metaphors. And, and this is the challenge. We, when we're talking about the ultimate transcendent, the, we don't have any choice but to employ metaphor. That's we we're not wrong in doing so. We have no alternative, but we must always remember when you literalize a metaphor, you're saying something untrue. And so what we need to do is use a multitude of metaphors and occasionally perhaps retire some that have become unhelpful. But, you know, of course, the Bible describes God as a rock, as a hen, as a father, as a mother, as a as a man that's asleep. You know, the Bible, there are a couple of passages where uh, God is awakened from slumber. He rouses himself as a man who's been asleep, and now he wakes up. But of course, we understand these are metaphors, and nobody really struggles with those metaphors, but we have tended to over-literalize the wrath metaphor. That's fascinating. And so by over-literalizing the metaphor of God's wrath, we're kind of almost, it sounds like, attributing things to God— Yes. Um, that, that aren't necessarily God at work. It's Many more a consequence, we're projecting right? projecting our own propensity for wrath and violence upon God so that we can gain divine endorsement. That's good, yeah. 
And so that, and you know, there's many egregious examples throughout even Christian history of Christians practicing horrible violence against right. people, but sanctioning it by saying that this is God's will and then citing the wars of Joshua and David and saying, okay, well, you know, these are modern day Canaanites and we're modern day Israel. And so we have divine warrant. I tell one of those stories in the book. No, that's that's good, Brian. Really, really good stuff. And I just have to tell you, I, I certainly appreciate how you um, how you really take the time to work through these things, uh, because I think they're heavy things. I think they're things that in our day and age, these are the questions that are being asked the most. That's why right? I wrote the book. I mean, I'm I'm engaging with theologians as I write. Uh, that is, I I've read their works, and their work, you know, informs a lot of what I do. But I'm not writing within the academy. I'm not writing to, you know, gain the approval of another theologian. I am writing as a pastor. Right. Perhaps as a pastor who has some theological acumen, but I'm writing as a pastor for people that are asking me questions like, what about the wrath of God? What about the fear of God? What about God killing on those people in the Old Testament? What about the violence of the cross? What about hell? Mm-hmm. That's a big one. What about the book of Revelation? In the end, doesn't Jesus renounce the Sermon on the Mount, come back and kill 200 million people? You know, and so these are these are not questions I've dreamed up. These are what I hear from people over a span of, you know, three and a half decades. Right. Awesome, brother. And that's why I really appreciate about the book is it is um, written in such a way that it's it, it, it deals with deep theological issues, but it's so accessible. Right. I mean, the, the way that you've written it is so accessible. And I just love that because I think these are the issues that oftentimes we only find out with in more academic writings. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this right. is a book that that takes those same heavy issues and makes them digestible and shareable. Honest, you know, I got all excited about that quote in David Bentley Hart's The Hidden and the Manifest Essays in Theology and Metaphysics. And I can promise you rare would be the layperson that's going to read this. Exactly. It's it's demanding, it's difficult, it's academic theology. And so, you know, at some point we have to be, I mean, I I respect the academy. I respect those that are doing that work. But at some point it has to be translated for the common person or what's the point? Exactly. Exactly. And, And I feel like that's exactly what you've done in Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And so certainly want to encourage our listeners um, to grab a copy, like I said, some very important issues in our in our day and time, and these are the questions that we as pastors are being asked, and right. uh, and you deal with them so f- very well. How, if people want to learn more about the book or maybe get in touch with you, learn more about your ministry, what's the best way to to get in touch? I'm and learn easy more? to find because I don't know any other Brian Zons. If you Google Brian Zons, Z A H N D, you'll find me. Like you know, Twitter, Facebook little bit of Instagram, find my website, brianzond.com, Word of Life Church, W-O-L-C.com. I mean, I'm not hard to find. So just Google my name and you'll find about half a dozen ways that you could reach out to me. Excellent. And the book's available pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Awesome. Any any last words that you'd like to leave with um, your colleagues, pastors, ministry leaders that maybe we haven't touched on or just to emphasize something? I want pastors in America to be encouraged, know that you are engaged in a task that is almost impossible. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound encouraging, but what I, mean is, what I mean is, it's I know it's very difficult to be a pastor in America right now. 
not to be not to leave it on such a provocative note, but we are trying to make disciples of people who are already thoroughly discipled into a rival religion that I would just call Americanism. But the grace of God is upon us and the mercy of God is upon us. And what we do matters. And, you know, there's never perhaps been in recent decades a time when the pastoral task is so important. So know that the Spirit of God is being poured out, and what we're doing matters. That's what I want to say. Awesome, brother. That's a great word. Brian, I just want to thank you for making time to be with us and to share with our listeners here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Uh, we certainly appreciate all that you're doing, and uh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app. It's available for both Apple and Android. And so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.